So we're in John 18. Uh, we're just going to look at the first 11 verses of that chapter tonight. So the last three weeks, we've been in the farewell discourse. The, well, actually, for longer than that. Uh, that starts with chapter 13 and the washing of the feet, and then all the way through the high priestly prayer. The last three weeks has been that, that prayer in chapter 17. So for weeks now, we've been studying what Jesus said on his last night with his disciples, and we've talked about how that's our origin as believers. That's the most important things Jesus had to say right there at the end. But, but if you were to end John's gospel with chapter 17, if that were the end of the story, and there was a little side note at the bottom said, and after this, Jesus was crucified. Or after this, Jesus evaded his enemies and slipped off into the wilderness. If it ended in any other way than what it did, it would all be a lie. You think about that? Jesus, it wasn't the wonderful things that Jesus said that made him our Messiah. It was what he did next. It was going to the cross. It was rising from the grave. It was ascending into heaven. It's not what Jesus said. It's what he did. And if he hadn't done those things on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, then I'm sorry, he's the worst kind of con man. He's the most eloquent and charismatic person who could suck you into believing he is something he is not. But because he did what he did, we can be saved. So in, in many ways, everything we've been reading up till now and studying up till now leads up to this part. So let's pick up with verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests, and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, you probably know this, but if not, you're going to learn something new. There are four Gospels. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell most of the same stories. They've got different details, but most of the same stories. They're called the synoptic gospels, from the word synoptic, which means the same view. In other words, they're, they're, they're looking at the same events. But then John comes along, and John's very different. The whole gospel of John is different than the, those other three, and especially the way he tells the story of Jesus' last day. You've already noticed, he doesn't talk about the Last Supper. He talks about the washing of the feet. He talks about the farewell discourse. Well, in this part, again, every other gospel story talks about Jesus face down in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to God and asking, Father, take this cup from me. John doesn't mention any of that. Now, why? Well, one reason we can speculate is we know that John's gospel was written many years after the other three. We, we imagine, we, we assume that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written somewhere between 60 and 70 AD, probably before 70. 
And John's gospel was written at least 20 years after that, if not 30 years after, when John was a very old man. So for him, I mean, this is just speculation on my part, he must have said by that time, those three gospels were well known. People knew those stories. They'd been circulated through all the churches. And he must have said, well, let me cover some stuff that those other three didn't cover. Let me, there, there are some things I remember and, and the other eyewitnesses remind me of that, that need to be told. And so John had a different agenda, all, all true, but just a different look. So it's a very dramatic story we're looking at tonight. And it's important to understand where it happened, who was there, and why they did what they did. So you probably see on your notes, it's going to be kind of an interesting outline. I'm just going to go through different places and people and just talk about what we see in them on this night, in this event. So first thing I want to point out is it says they went across the Brook Kidron. Now, that makes it sound like they crossed some kind of running stream. Unless there'd been a lot of rain then, there wasn't any water in it. The actual word that's used there is the, the I don't know if it's Greek or, or Aramaic, but it's the word wadi, W-A-I-D, I mean W-A-D-I. In, in Texas, we would call it a gully, right? It, it's, it's, a car, it's a spot carved out of the ground that's dry unless there's a heavy rain. Only... I didn't have any gullies in my cow pasture or anywhere where I grew up that were like the Kidron Valley. Um, what you have to, in order to picture it, it's, it's just outside the gates of Jerusalem. If you've ever seen the pictures of old Jerusalem, they're just massive gates. And then in that time, at, at, that, at that particular gate, you would have seen up above it, towering high above it, the gleaming white facade of the temple. It would look like a snow-capped mountain. It would have been the highest thing anywhere around. Uh, and so you walk out that gate, past the temple, and you immediately go down into this little valley, the Kidron Valley. And then from there, you start climbing steadily up onto the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is not a mountain like we think of it today. Picture one of the hills in the hill country, but not one of the big ones. I mean, something you can go up on two feet. You don't ever have to crawl. It's not that steep, but it's steep enough that it's a little bit of work to get up there. So partway up that mount, but near the base, there's an olive grove. And that, we believe, is what John is talking about when he says they went into a garden. Notice he's the only one of the, of the uh, evangelists, the gospel writers, that doesn't call it the Garden of Gethsemane. The other three do. The word Gethsemane means, here's, here's your trivia if you want to impress someone when you get home. Gethsemane means oil press. And that's not black gold Texas tea, right? That's olive oil. So they're, they're pressing olives there uh, because olive oil was one of the major uh, industries or, or businesses. The Garden of Gethsemane is where they go. It says they went inside, which means there was some kind of a gate, some kind of an enclosure. And this is a place they often went to pray. By the way, when you go to Jerusalem today, I've told you this before, there's a lot of sites that you go to and you say, oh, well, I mean, this is pretty. That's pretty that they built that church on top of that important site, but I wish they hadn't done that. I wish they would have left it the way that it was. But in the first few centuries of when, when Christianity became legal and legit, that's what Christians did. Oh, well, this is the spot where Jesus healed this person. Let's, let's build a church there. This is the spot where Jesus ascended into heaven. Well, let's build a church there. Gethsemane's different. When you go there, there is a church there but there's still the olive grove. And the guide will tell you those trees are hundreds of years old. Some of them may even be 
thousands of years old. And you can tell, they look old. So you can go there today and you can sit among those olive trees and if you go when there's not a lot of people around early in the morning, you can really imagine being there when Jesus and His disciples were. Jesus goes into that garden. John, of course, doesn't tell us any of what happens immediately following. He doesn't tell us about Jesus falling on His face and praying for, for the Father to take the cup away from Him. He doesn't tell about the disciples falling asleep. He doesn't tell any of that. Instead, He just tells us what happens next, how Jesus went to them. We'll get to that in a minute. So let's talk about Judas. When we started this study, one of the first things we talked about was Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. We talked about he even washed Judas's feet, which is still amazing when you think about it, because Jesus knew what, Jesus, what Judas was there to do. And at the time, I gave you my own speculation as to why Judas betrayed Jesus. Please understand, it is my speculation. The Bible gives us no definitive answer on why Judas did what he did. I said at the time, and I still believe, it was a combination of greed and disappointment. Greed in that we know that he was the one who volunteered to carry the money bag and that he stole from the money bag that the disciples carried. And disappointment in that he probably thought, okay, we're suffering now, but soon Jesus is going to be king of Israel and we'll hit the big time. And when he finally saw that wasn't going to happen, I believe that's what was the final straw for him. When he saw Jesus, for instance, uh, this woman come and anoint him with, with perfume, with expensive perfume, and, and Judas said, well, that could have been sold and given to the poor. Judas didn't care any more about the poor than the man on the moon. But he hated to see money thrown away like that. Jesus said, what she's done is a beautiful thing. And I think that was the moment when Judas said, this man and I, we just don't share the same values. I can't, I can't follow him anymore. We need to get rid of him so the real Messiah can come. That's my opinion. What's important to note is the disciples at this point still didn't see Judas as a traitor. Even though Jesus had told them what was going to happen, they still didn't understand. They still saw Judas as one of their friends. Remember, John even says when he went out, they thought, well, he must have gone to get something more for the feast. So imagine their surprise. Imagine their shock when their friend, their good friend, they've spent every waking minute with, every sleeping minute with, for the past three years. This man who had sacrificed every bit as much as they have, had suffered every bit as much as they had. This man who had gone out with one of them to do miracles and to preach the gospel. And all of a sudden, he comes walking up with this big band of soldiers with torches and clubs. And by the way, when it says in verse 2 that Jesus often met in that garden with his disciples, doesn't that kind of accentuate the betrayal? Because... This was a special place. Judas knew about that place because that was a place where Jesus shared his heart with his friends. Now, speaking of the soldiers, I don't know how you picture this, but John gives us the biggest picture, the most detailed picture of what the group was like that arrested Jesus. And it was a big group. For instance, it, it mentions three groups of people. It mentions a, a battalion of soldiers. A battalion was 
one-tenth of a regiment, or, or, a, or a legion, that is. So it could have been as many as 600. A lot of scholars say, well, yeah, but usually it wasn't the full battalion, so it may have been two or 300. Still, that's a lot of people to arrest one man. Then it says, the officials of the chief priests. Uh, the, the chief priest is, the reason it's, it's plural, some of y'all know this. Uh, if you've been reading my devotionals before Easter, I talked about this. There was one high priest at a time. Traditionally, the high priest was someone, and all priests were people who descended from Aaron, the brother of Moses. That's the way God set it up. By the time the Romans took over, it had become a political position. So the Romans were the ones who chose the high priest. Let me ask you something, and you don't have to answer out loud. But knowing what you know of the Romans, do you think the Romans thought to themselves, oh, well, we better take the Torah seriously. We better choose someone who is a legitimate descendant of Aaron, someone who is a true believer in the Torah, someone who, who really loves Yahweh and, and upholds his word. Of course not. They chose people who would work with them and who could grease their palms, right? So there was a man in one of those priestly families named Annas, He's mentioned in the Gospels, although not here. He was high priest. And then whoever was Roman procurator at the time got tired of him and they dismissed him. But Annas was not to be easily put off. He ended up putting four of his sons and one son-in-law into the high priest's office. High priests were supposed to serve for life, but the Romans did what they wanted to do. Still, Annas was sort of like the godfather, right? He made sure he had power behind the scenes. So when it says the, high, the chief priest is talking about Annas, it's talking about his sons and his son-in-law, whose name was Caiaphas. So when it says the officials of the chief priests, it's referring to the temple guard. The, the Jews were allowed to have a small unit of Jewish soldiers who guarded the temple so the Romans wouldn't have to. Small enough they wouldn't cause the Romans any trouble, but big enough that they could maintain order within the, in the ranks of the temple. By the way, why didn't, why didn't the chief priest just send that group to arrest Jesus? Well, you might remember in chapter 7, they did send the temple guard out to arrest Jesus, and they came home empty-handed. And the chief priest said, well, we told you to bring him back. Where is he? And they said, no one's ever spoken like this man. They said, well, we're not taking any chances this time. We're going to go to Pilate. We're going to get a whole battalion of soldiers. The third group that's mentioned is the Pharisees. So some of the group that's called the Pharisees went along. Now, you probably know, if you've been in church most of your life, and most of you have, that there were two main groups among the Jews. There were the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? The big difference was the, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in anything in the Old Testament besides the first five books, the Torah, and they didn't believe in an afterlife. And that's why they were sad, you see. That's how you remember it. I didn't make that up. Notice the Sadducees are never mentioned in the Gospel of John. You know why? Because by the time John wrote his Gospel, unlike the first three, by the time John wrote his gospel, the Sadducees no longer existed. Because once the temple was gone, once the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, that was their life. Their whole system was built around propping up the temple and making money off the temple and gaining power off the temple. When it was gone, they were gone. So John doesn't even mention them. He just mentions the chief priests, their officials, the Pharisees, and the battalion of soldiers. Now, one other thing about that battalion. 
I said they wanted to make sure Jesus got arrested, but I think there was also another motive. They knew that Jesus had some followers. Sometimes he'd have a big crowd. Sometimes it was just his 12 disciples. They wanted to make sure there wasn't any trouble. But I think they also wanted to just grab the whole bunch. They wanted this to be... When I was uh, in college, I remember coming home and uh, from school, and my brother, who was in high school at the time, said, hey, did you know that Yoakum has a gang now? I said, no, they do. And he said, well, they did. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there's this bunch of kids that just got together and they decided to, to form a gang. Uh, and they called themselves something like the Street Kings or something. And, and I said, well, what happened to it? He said, well, somebody told the cops and the cops just showed up and arrested all of them. I said, well, had they done anything? No, but they just, they threw him in the jail and have a few days, let him out. And that was the end of that gang. And I thought, well, you can do that in a small town. <laughs> and in a way, that's what the chief priests wanted to do. They wanted to grab the entire Jesus movement in one fell swoop. They wanted a group so big, there wouldn't be any trouble, no fighting back, just a show of force that said, okay, we're done. And of course, the reason why they needed Judas was because if they'd done that in the daylight, when Jesus is in the temple teaching, or anywhere in public, you know how many people still admire Jesus, still thought he might be the Messiah? There would be a riot, and there wouldn't be enough soldiers to stop it from getting violent. But in the dark, where no one can see, I mean, by the time everybody in Jerusalem wakes up and knows what's happening, Jesus will already be on the cross. This is their plan. So then there's Malchus. This is the only place his name is mentioned. All four Gospels tell the story of Peter cutting off someone's ear. Luke is the only one who tells us it was the right ear, and Luke is the only one who tells us that Jesus healed his ear, possibly because Luke was a physician. He cared about those kinds of details. John is the only one who tells us that it was Peter who cut off the man's ear, and the only one who tells us that man's name. Malchus. The name Malchus is an Arab name. So Malchus is probably of Arab descent, uh, possibly married to a Jew, but either way, he is a slave to the high priest. Now we hear that and we think, oh, he must have been pretty lowly. In that world, slaves could be as low as people who got sent into the mines. They could also be what we would consider uh, middle management. They could be executives. They could be uh, scribes. They could be white-collar employees. From the way John writes this, it seems to me that Malchus is sort of like Caiaphas's right-hand man. So yes, he's a slave. No, he's not free. But he probably wouldn't want to be free because he lives well. He lives. He's the right-hand man of the high priest. He's got position. He has rank. And, and the reason why John is the only one who names him could be that John knew him. Because remember, uh, one of the Gospels tells us that John was acquainted with the high priest. There must have been some kind of family connection or maybe uh, somewhere down the line they knew each other. And so he probably knew this man too, Malchus. Some speculate that the reason Malchus is mentioned here is because he later became a believer. And the reason John mentions him is to say, hey, some of you have heard of this guy because he was part of your church long, long ago. I hope that's true. When I get to heaven, I'm going to look for him but we don't know. Either way, can you imagine being a person who goes out to the garden in the middle of the night 
to arrest Jesus because that's what you do because you're the right-hand man of the chief priest and he told you to do it and, and you're going to get it done and you're going to show him that you're, you're there to do his business uh, and do it efficiently and then suddenly you find yourself flat on your back with blood coming out of the side of your head and your ear on the ground beside you and you're in shock and then that man, Jesus, walks over and takes that ear and puts it back on your head. It's going to take you a while to understand what just happened to you. I wonder how this changed, Malchus. I'd love to know more to that story, wouldn't you? What happened to him after that? We'll find out someday. We'll find out someday. And then there's Peter. Good old Peter. Most relatable of all the disciples. One of my commentaries in this story, I wrote this down because I just thought this was a really good way to say it. They said, Peter is always a curious mix of loyalty and obtuseness. <laughs> it's pretty accurate. We look at Peter in the garden, pulling out that sword and striking. He cuts off a man's ear, which tells me he's trying to put a sword right through somebody's head, right? He's a fisherman, he's not a soldier, he's just woken up, he's not steady on his feet, so he misses, but he comes close enough to take his ear off. But he is not threatening, he is trying to kill. He is trying to cleave a man's head wide open. And we look at that and we think, well, at least he's brave. I'm not so sure. With all due respect to Peter, with all due respect to Peter, okay, who's by far a greater man than I'll ever be, but let's consider this. In Matthew 26, 33, I mean, all four Gospels tell of Jesus telling Peter, you're going to fail tonight. You're going to deny me. Matthew gives us this detail in Matthew 26, 33. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. One thing you see in Peter, and I know I'm, I'm playing armchair psychologist, but I really feel I'm right about this. Peter, for all his good qualities, for all his loyalty, for all his true faith, he needed to be first. And some of you know people like this. Some of you are people like this. He needed to win every single time. He needed to be the first one to shout out the answer. Maybe if you've ever taught, you've had that kid in your class. Okay, right now, somebody besides Jane gets to answer, right? She's always, Miss so-and-so. Peter was that guy. He had to be first. In fact, uh, well, we'll get to it in a few weeks with the, with the resurrection. I love the detail of John and Peter ran to the tomb and John beat him. I bet that drove Peter crazy. <laughs> Peter is determined. Lord, even if everybody else runs away, tucks tail and runs, leaves you abandoned, I will die before I abandon you. He had to be first. And so think about what's happened in the meantime. He has been chosen by Jesus along with James and John to be the ones that prayed with Jesus in his hour of need. Again, John doesn't tell us this, but we know from the other three Gospels. And he fails, not once, but three times. Jesus goes away and prays, comes back. All three of them are still asleep. The last time when Jesus comes to wake him up, he addresses Peter directly, almost as if he's saying, hey, I thought you were going to be with me no matter what, and you can't even stay awake. So Peter's already feeling like his reputation is besmirched, like I need to do something to, uh, to validate myself in the eyes of Jesus. And then this troop shows up, 
Now, in one sense, is what Peter did brave? Yes, Peter probably knows. I'm not going to kill all 600 people here. But I'm sure he's thinking, I'm going to go down swinging. I'm going to prove to Jesus that I, I, my word is good, that I really am the most devoted of all. What I'm telling you is, he had zeal, yes. He had decisive action, yes. And we admire those qualities. But zeal and decisiveness in the cause of human ambition is not the same thing as courage, and it's certainly not the same thing as faith. In fact, people with zeal and decisiveness on the wrong cause can do some of the most damage of anybody on earth. I mean, that's, I just described every suicide bomber that ever existed. Zeal and decisiveness are easy for us to admire. When you watch action films, right? And I know most of us, I mean, maybe some of you are, are, you don't like violence, but the rest of us, boy, we really love those movies with lots of explosions and lots of people getting shot and all, oh, there's lots of good action. Well, the heroes of those are, are zealous. They have a cause they believe in and they take decisive action. They don't wait around for things to happen. They go out and make things happen. And we admire that. But again, that on its own isn't courage and it certainly isn't faith. I'll give you another example from Scripture. The most zealous person in the, Old, in the New Testament and a person who, while everybody else complained and whined and condemned from afar, actually went out and did something was Saul of Tarsus. He was zealous for the Lord. He didn't care what anybody thought. He didn't care if it meant dragging a mother away from her, her crying children and throwing her in jail. He didn't, meet, he didn't mind if it meant uh, stoning somebody to death in an open square, if the Romans didn't like it, too bad. He was zealous for the Lord as, as he understood it, and he was going to take action. He wasn't just going to talk. Think about the lives he damaged. He calls himself later the chief of sinners. His zeal and his decisiveness led him to sin. And that's, in another way, Peter. So, we can kind of leave Peter there, because after he cuts off that ear, and after Jesus rebukes him, he runs away just like the rest. That little brief moment of, of zealous, of zeal, is gone. Now he knows, I better get out of here. But here's the question. Why was he able to get out of there? Why did they let those disciples run away? Well, that brings us to the last person in the story, and that's Jesus. Jesus, this is something I learned the last time I was in Israel, in Jerusalem, because our guide pointed this out. So I told you earlier, Here's the temple, here's the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley in the middle, and somewhere around right here is the Garden of Gethsemane. So picture Jesus there. Picture those, uh, that, those 600 men, 600 plus, coming out of the temple complex, out of the gates of Jerusalem, walking down into that valley. It's, the night, it's dark, dark night. They've got torches, they've got lanterns. You can see them coming for probably an hour before they get there. Our guide this last time did something I'd never done. It's my third time in Israel. He said, let me show you what's on the other side of the Mount of Olives. So on this side between the Garden of Gethsemane and Jerusalem, it looks nice. There's grass, there's trees. You climb the top of the Mount of Olives and you get right over the top and you look over to the other side and it's barren. And there's full, it's full of caves, limestone caves. That's the Judean wilderness. That's where David went and hid from King Saul, and Saul couldn't find him no matter what he did. 
And the guide was pointing out to us. This is a Jewish guide, by the way. He said, Jesus, in about 10 minutes, could have gone over the side of that mountain and no one would have ever found him. So he saw those 600 plus men coming for him with torches. He knew they were coming. He could have run away easily, but he didn't. In fact, not only did he not run away, he went to them. John is the only one who includes this detail. He went to them. He said, who are you looking for? Now, why would he do that? We know why, because he says it later. You've got me, now let these go. You got me, now let these go. That was his motive. Before they grab anybody else, grab me so these can escape, so my disciples can escape. He said it, he prayed in his prayer in John 17. Lord, I haven't lost a single one you gave me except the one who was doomed to destruction from the beginning, and that's Judas. And he was keeping his word to the Father. I'm going to protect all of them. I'm going to give my life for theirs. John also is the only one who includes this detail. When they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, he says, uh, I am he, and they all fall. Now, I don't know if that means all 600 plus fell or just the men in the front. Either way, that's pretty amazing because these are professional soldiers. These are men who, number one, they're used to taking life. Number two, they hate Jews. So why would they have this kind of respect? The word, I am he. Actually, in the original Greek, it's two words. It's ego I me, which means I am. The he is added by English translators. It's not really there. He's saying in Hebrew, he's saying Yahweh. He's saying the name of God. So why do these soldiers fall down? That's what happens whenever somebody encounters the Almighty. You don't stand on your feet when you come into the presence of the Almighty. So Jesus says, let them go. And they do. They take him, but John makes sure we know that Jesus was not a victim. Jesus was in charge. This is what he chose. Yes, what happened to Jesus was unjust. It's probably the most unjust verdict in any trial in history, but Jesus wanted that. That's how he could redeem us. And when he says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup? Peter tries to kill this man, and Jesus says, stop it. Put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? Remember, the other Gospels tell us he's been praying, Father, if possible, take this cup from me. All through the Old Testament, that image of a cup, that always represents the wrath of God. The wrath of God poured out upon us. No, the wrath of God collected in one single cup so Jesus can drink it all, all all for us. Jesus is saying, I have to die for them. This is what I came to do. If you get your way, Peter, and I, I walk away free, if I call down 12 legions of angels and destroy them, or if I run over the top of that mountain and escape into the Judean wilderness, then everything I've done up till now will be a lie. I have to die for them. And you know, the interesting thing is, you know, as Christians, you start to notice this if you watch enough movies, read enough books, how often this theme keeps coming up in our fiction. So I'm going to give you three examples. Just indulge me. I, I'm a bit of a nerd. Uh, so Tale of Two Cities. Remember when you had to read that in, in high school English? Remember, it starts off, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Well, do you remember how it ends? So, so there's 
there's three main characters. It's set during the French Revolution. There's this Frenchman named Charles Darnay, falls in love with a young woman named Lucy Manette, a young British woman, I believe, and they get married. They have a little girl. There's a lawyer named Sidney Carton. Sidney looks a lot like Charles, a lot like him, could, could pass for brothers. Sidney, unlike Charles, is a cynic. He's a drunkard. He's kind of a reprobate guy. So Charles gets arrested. This is during the terror when people are losing their heads to the guillotine. He's in jail. Poor Lucy's going to be widowed. That little girl's going to be growing up without a father. And Charles and Sidney Carton hasn't done a good thing in his life, but he does it here. Out of love for Lucy, he drugs Charles, has him smuggled out of the jail and put on a, on a coach and driven back to his wife. He goes into the jail himself. And the next day, they take him out to execute him. And he, one of the great quotes in all literature, he says, it is a far, far better thing that I do now than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. Old Charles Dickens could write, couldn't he? <laughs> so second example. Last of the Mohicans, I've never read the book, but in 1992, they made a movie. I love that movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it or not. Daniel Day-Lewis plays Hawkeye, the main character. It's really good unless... Again, you don't like action. It's pretty violent. But, so the, the main three, there's Hawkeye, this American scout. There's Duncan, this British soldier. And Cora, this beautiful daughter of the British general. Now, Hawkeye and Duncan both love Cora. But she loves Hawkeye. Duncan doesn't like that. So, several times in the movie, you see Duncan trying to get Hawkeye in trouble and well, toward the end of the movie, they get captured by some uh, Mohawk, who are French allies. The Mohawk decide that they're going to let Korra go free, but they're going to burn Hawkeye in the fires. Now, Hawkeye can't speak French, which is what the Mohawks speak, but Duncan can. So he says, will you translate for me? Duncan says, yes. He says, tell the chief. Tell the no, I got that wrong. She's they're going to burn Korra in the fire. Hawkeye says... Tell the chief, burn me instead. Let her go, burn me instead. So Duncan says something to the chief in French that nobody else can understand. The chief nods his head and they take Duncan, the British soldier, and tie him to the stake and burn him. Hawkeye says, but I told you to take me. He gave up his life so she could have the man she wanted. Pretty beautiful. And then there's a really bad example, okay? Even really bad fiction. Don't go see this movie. Don't rent it. Don't stream it. But the movie Armageddon back in the 90s. End of the movie, you've got these oil drillers who are trying to blow up a, an asteroid in space. I know. I know. Uh, it's a man. It's a stupid man movie. Um, and, and so there's Harry and, and his daughter Grace and there's AJ. And AJ and Grace are together, and Harry doesn't like it. But at the end, somebody's got to stay on the asteroid and blow it up. They've got to push the button, right? He's going to die. They draw straws. AJ draws the short straw. He's going to die. Harry takes his place, sends him on so he can be with his daughter. These are all examples of a heroic sacrifice for the sake of others. Where did that come from? That came from the story of Jesus. We see it over and over and over again in fiction. We all know, even people who aren't believers, there's no greater sign of love and courage than that. But here's the thing. The difference is that in all of those examples, they're examples of 
bad people who redeem themselves through one act of self-sacrifice. But Jesus wasn't that. Jesus was a righteous man who redeemed the bad people. That's the glory of the cross. And when we try to redeem ourselves, take matters into our own hands, we don't end up like Sidney Carton or Duncan or Harry. We end up like Peter. When we try to do it ourselves and make a hero out of ourselves, we always mess it up. But instead, when we surrender to the one who redeemed us by his blood, that's when we can really be brave. That's when we can really love others. Because then when we sacrifice for others, we know we're not doing it for our own reputation. We know we're not doing it just so you owe me something. We're doing it because Christ first loved us. We can truly love others the way we've been loved when we accept the sacrificial death of Jesus for our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, are in awe of what you did and what you continue to do. And it is such a blessing to hear the story again and again. As sad as it makes us, it also fills us with joy because we know we're loved. And I pray that we would communicate that story and never forget it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.